0: Lifting Health for All is a podcast from the Simon Research Lab at the Center for Health Equity Transformation, hearing voices from the research and community world with a focus on health equity. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all.
1: Hi, this is Rubia.
0: Hi, this is Arisali. Hi, this is Ivy. We are the voices behind Skinny Trees, lifting health for all. We are introducing ourselves so you get to know our voices.
1: We work very much as a team here and each of us contributes to the production of this podcast.
0: We like to end our interviews by asking
2: our guests to share their book recommendations. So we would like to share our own book and podcast recommendations.
1: Great, I will start. My book is The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp by George Saunders. This is technically a children's book but it has many layers and touches upon the power of kindness, generosity, compassion, and community. It's a modern fable about a problem that plagues a seaside village. It's also hilarious fun to read out loud.
0: My favorite book is Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life by Barbara Kingsilver. She moved her family of four to Appalachia and planned to only eat foods grown locally for an entire year to decrease environmental impacts. Each family recounts their experiences on producing their own food in their perspective. I love this book because many people don't know and don't care about where the food comes from, especially the negative consequences that we are leaving to our planet. For my book
2: titled Sharp Objects, this is a psychological thriller about a journalist returning to her hometown to cover the recent murders of two local girls. And I really enjoyed the plot twists in the story and the struggle that the narrator faces with mental health.
1: And now um, we'll share podcasts. Uh, so I recommend the Freakonomics Radio podcast hosted by Stephen Dubner. This podcast discusses the, quote, hidden side of everything including topics varies um, from the economics of professional athletes to the science of medical journals.
0: For me, my recent favorite podcast is called Decomposed with Jay Simmons. This podcast tells you the stories, secrets, and scandals behind all the masterpieces in classical music. I really like this because there is so much emotion in classical music, but I never knew where they come from until I listened to the history behind them.
2: And for my recommended podcast, I recommend Latino USA, from NPR, they offer insight into into the lived experiences of Latinx communities and current events impacting our nation. I enjoy hearing the many diverse stories um, that they share in this podcast and understanding not only current events, but his,
0: historical events as well. For this episode, Rabia and our team sat down with Dr. Julie Merida former commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health in May 2019, before she left her post to join the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as the executive vice president, overseeing all programming, policy, research, and communication activities in support of his vision of building a culture of health in America, in which everyone has a fair and just opportunity for health and well-being. And now, without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Dr. Julie Morita.
1: sitting with the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, Dr. Julie Marita, She was appointed uh, commissioner in 2015 by a former mayor Ron Manuel. Uh, she developed and launched Healthy Chicago 2.0, a four-year plan with health equity as its guiding principle to address the social determinants of health. Dr. Morita has previously served as the department's chief medical officer. She has served as a member of the Institutes of Medicine's committee on community-based solutions to promote health equity. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, and the Illinois Chapter of American Academ- American Academy of Pediatrics. Prior to joining CDPH, uh, Chicago Department of Public Health, Dr. Marita was an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer with the CDC and worked in private practice. She's a graduate of the UIC Medical School. And Dr. Marina, thank you for joining us today.
3: My pleasure to be here.
1: Very good. So we have a number of questions to ask you. First of which is, um, you became interested in helping others um, as a Chicago uh, public school student. What stands out to you as a pivotal moment where that little girl evolved into the commissioner of one of the largest public health systems in the country?
3: That's a great question. I actually don't think there was one moment or one pivotal moment where I turned from a little girl into the Commissioner of the Department of Public Health, it's been a lifelong journey um, to get here. I was um, When I was little, actually before being a Chicago Public School student, my dad used to read to me often and he read to me a, a story about a nurse, Nancy Nurse, who was helping – pretending to this little girl who's pretending to be a nurse and helping people in her neighborhood, all her friends. And that was – I it was inspired by that. I thought – I said to him, I really want to do that, I want to help people. And so as I progressed through my education, I kind of landed in in the field of medicine and wanted to be a pediatrician, and so became a pediatrician and loved the work. But pediatrics is so prevention-oriented. There was a real natural fit for me to go from general pediatric practice into public health. And in public health here at the health department, I've been here for 20 years, I've had unbelievable opportunities to be a part of emergency responses related to pandemic influenza, meningitis, Ebola, Ebola but also some important immunization initiatives that are ongoing and and required systems to be in place. And all those things gave me opportunities to lead. And so when the opportunity arose for me to be the commissioner of the health department, I took advantage of it. Um, And so again, I don't think there was a pivotal moment, but I think I've had great opportunities and didn't shy away from an opportunity to to lead. And when I given the opportunity, I took advantage of it.
1: Thank you, thank you for sharing that. That the uh, pandemic. Um, could you could you describe that a little bit, like the the timing and how you experienced that?
3: Sure. So in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, there was a novel strain of influenza that was introduced um, to humans, and. Uh, jurisdictions throughout the nation, throughout the world, were actually dealing with how to prevent the spread of this new infection. There wasn't a vaccine at the time, and so we had to really bring together our partners in health systems, our partners in the community to really educate the public about what they could do without a vaccine, but then also develop systems to distribute vaccine when it was available. And through that experience, really learned how important partnerships in the community are, and how important public information is to help people understand what the risks are, what they can do to protect themselves, but also working working with healthcare providers to make sure they knew how to get the vaccine out and who needed to be immunized and how do we prioritize immunization. So it was an incredible learning experience and uh, uh, for, me, for me and, and it was real formative uh, in terms of my desire. And the key thing there was we knew there was a serious threat to public health, we had to respond, we knew what we had to get done, and just focusing and bringing in the right team members to really help us to get the work done was critical, and, and we were
1: successful. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. We are part of the um, Northwestern University's Center for Health Equity Transformation, newly minted, um, about a few months uh, now. Uh, so we're wondering, what does health equity mean mm-hmm. to you?
3: Yeah, so health, in, in 2016, the Department of Public Health launched our uh, Healthy Chicago 2.0. And a critical element of that plan was really focusing on health equity. And what health equity means is really assuring that all individuals have the opportunity to live healthy lives, that they're really able to have the resources and the opportunities they need to be healthy. Um, And so a lot of it really focuses on addressing health disparities. And that's work that I've done throughout the course of my career here on the Department of Public Health, starting with immunizations, but then expanding more broadly, really looking at who has the greatest risk for diseases, who has the greatest risk for not accessing healthcare services, or being able to live the healthiest lives possible, And, and really focusing on how do we help individuals um, get the resources, have the opportunities that they need to to live healthy lives. Thank you. And
1: is there is there a definition of healthy that um, you subscribe to for that, or is it just, um, or is or is it just the sort of the idea of healthiness for each individual? That's
3: it's be, it's health uh, health and well being. I think there's okay. a you yeah. know you can be it's physical health as well as right, right. Uh, mental health and being um, able to take advantage of your life and enjoy your life fully so it's beyond just the absence of disease right right thank you
1: um, so how is chicago unique uh then in addressing these health disparities and inequities
3: so i think we've because public health has had limited resources as far back as i can remember we've always had to really direct the resources that we have to those that have the greatest need and so that is what our our focus has been with addressing health equity is really identifying who the populations are that are at greatest risk, making sure that our resources, whether it's a program or it's dollars or it's the um, policy, making sure that they're really geared toward addressing the populations that have the greatest needs. So in some communities, we know um, that they don't access health care services as well. So making sure that they have information that they need to get the services. Or we know there are some communities that are less likely to get immunized. So making sure that we have clinics that are available to individuals to get immunized. So it's really about identifying who's at greatest risk and getting the resources to them um, in in a variety of different ways.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, So another question we have for you is, um, how do you define social and structural determinants of health, and can you give an example of each that resonate with you and the work you've done here in Chicago?
3: Yes, I think, um, so in order, what we realized that a lot of our work in the past had really been specific to diseases, specific um, interventions for a particular disease or for a particular issue, but the disparities really weren't going away. And in order for us to really address these disparities, whether it's life expectancy or teen births or numbers of HIV infections, we really have to look at the root causes of poor health. And those root causes are things like social factors, like, um, the lack of access to healthcare services, lack of educational opportunities, poor transportation, um, lack of housing, those kinds of factors really make a difference in terms of people's health overall. So if we improve the conditions that people are living in, we can actually address their physical health as well as their mental health and not look at things from our disease-specific approach and not look at diseases in terms of a treatment approach. It's really all about prevention of disease. So there's some great work that we've been doing a lot of fun that we've had in the past few years uh, since we launched healthy chicago 2.0 was really looking at cross-sector partnerships so who are non-traditional partners um, to public health who really have an impact on education or housing or transportation public health doesn't own those issues nor do we have resources to address those issues but our job is really to engage with our partners to say as you're contemplating policies or programs or initiatives make sure you're contemplating what, how that work impacts health. So a great example is um, that uh, Elevated is a project that we've been working on with a number of different community organizations, um, transportation, planning organizations in the city of Chicago to look at transit equitable transit-oriented development. So there was some funding that became available Our Metropolitan Planning Council, IFF, non-traditional partners of ours reached out to us and said, join us in this initiative. Let's apply for the funding and see if we can get it. And we were fortunate enough to get the funding. And that's allowed us to really focus in on four different communities in the city of Chicago, looking at seven different train stations Mm -hmm. and looking at the half-mile radius around those train stations and and focusing on development of those half-mile radii to make sure that there's um, health is contemplated as businesses come in, looking at um, the environment. What is the impact on the environment when new businesses come in? Looking at arts and culture in those areas as well, but really looking at these areas or these communities holistically and saying what are the needs and how do we make sure that they're developed in ways that really have a positive impact on health. So that was, that's was that been a lot of fun. Another initiative that we've worked on is the Flexible Housing Pool. We um, Department of Public Health recognized that in order for people to live healthy lives and to be able to access health services, they really have to have a roof over their heads. Um, so we engaged with the Department of Family and Support Services, Department of Planning, uh, Chicago Housing Authority, housing agencies in the city of Chicago, healthcare systems, philanthropy, and so looked at different models throughout the nation and found a model in Los Angeles where they actually pooled resources from the county, from healthcare systems, mm-hmm and then created a pool of housing that was flexible. So individuals who had serious mental illness, substance use disorder, or who were justice involved could actually be eligible for housing, where they wouldn't be if for, by HUD standards. And so mm-hmm. we've created a pool, and so far the city has contributed over a million dollars. The county health system has also contributed a million dollars. We have other healthcare systems that are interested in doing the same. And the goal is really to increase the numbers of permanent supportive housing units that are available with the services of people that have serious mental illness, substance use disorder, or who have our justice involved, who need housing, can get the housing they need, and then improve their lives overall. So these both examples are examples of how we really engage with non-traditional partners right. to really work with them to acknowledge how important their work is and how it can impact health overall.
1: That's excellent. So I was just gonna ask that question, it's wonderful. Um, those are two great examples. In Healthy Chicago 2.0 you mentioned, there are a number of um, these outcomes that are overarching. How is it measured? And you could use how, whichever example you want, um, For that one about housing, for example. Is it the metric that um, people get more housing whereas before they didn't have housing? Or is there, a, is there a goal in mind or objective that you lay out?
3: So I think one of the things to keep in mind is as we've embarked on this approach to look at determinants of health and to look at health equity none of these things will, if we address the root causes, we won't expect to see a difference on health outcomes or even health behaviors immediately. It's going to take a long time. But we also recognize that we need to measure progress. And so in Healthy Chicago 2.0, we have nearly 70 indicators that we identified, um, different kinds of measures, health behavior, health outcomes, social factors that we'll be tracking over time to see if we are making a difference, and if we are making progress over time, and so, you know, something like life expectancy, we're not going to see that change overnight. But there are other measures in terms of like number of people who are in need of housing, or um, vaccine coverage levels, or um, uh, people people report, self reports of. Um, Their mental status how how they feel mental health wellness those kinds of factors there's all these different things that we can measure and see if things are improving we really did focus in on identifying metrics that we could follow that would be specific to higher risk populations as well so we can focus in on if we know that LGBTQ youth are more likely to attempt suicide then really looking at the rates of attempted suicide among that population over time. So not just general variables, but looking at the specific populations that we're most concerned about. Um, but I think the other thing is we also know that it's really important to have data that we can measure over time and so we we have invested in the Healthy Chicago survey mm-hmm. which is a telephone survey that we do on an annual basis so that we get real time information almost real time information to help us to know what our health behaviors what our health count- outcomes what are people thinking about in the city of Chicago and we know that we'll always have this information because we own the the source but we also tap into vital records hospitalization data other partners data as well so it's it's really and then it's really important for us to have those measures, monitor them over time, but be thoughtful and strategic about which kinds of measures to follow. Right. It's also really important to us as well to make sure the data are available to others. And so we created the Chicago Health Atlas, which is an online tool that mm-hmm. anybody can tap into to get access to the data that we use to create our plan and also to monitor our plan as well.
1: It, it's open source That's for open. people to come in. Yeah, that, that sounds And so anyone, a student, or scientists, or what have you, can access that information. And, it's great.
3: Yeah, my yeah. daughter just graduated from college, and one of her last classes was a data science class, and she's mm-hmm. out of state. But I said, if you, she had, had to get a data set that was publicly available, so I referred her to the Health Atlas, and so she had a lot of fun playing around with the data, looking at teen birth rates and comparing that to gonorrhea rates and Uh then looking at homicide rates in different communities and just making correlations or looking for correlations, possible correlations. But the data are there for students to play around with like that, but then also for community organizations to use to inform grant applications that they're submitting for academic institutions to use as well. So it's really meant to be publicly available and to use to bring more resources into the city of Chicago.
1: Wonderful. I actually personally got a call from the Chicago Survey and I answered and I, I, I was very happy to give my uh, all my answers to those questions. That's this, great. This question. so, <laughs> I do really appreciate that. Um, one, so one thing we're interested in is, uh, our, and you did mention already a few examples, but if you could uh, maybe provide some examples of what you consider uh, some new or innovative work that um, has yet to be done to help ensure that everyone has equi- equitable opportunities to be healthy.
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um... I mean, I think there's as much progress. We celebrate a lot of things again, like the drop in teen birth rates, drop in teen smoking rates. Um, number few, we have so few. No, I shouldn't say so few. The numbers of new HIV diagnoses are going down every year, and we're actually aiming to get to zero, but we're not there yet. So, in every one of those categories, even though there's been great progress has been made, there still are. Some subpopulations who are more heavily affected or more severely impacted, and so really focusing in and making sure the resources are going to those communities is really really important. And so, I, I am really I feel like we're just scratching the surface in our work as it relates to lifting up communities, community place based type of work. When we look at communities, we we know which communities are most severely impacted by poverty, mm-hmm. by violence, by obesity, by diabetes, heart disease, they're all the same communities. Those communities really need to have the resources and the attention they need so that people have the opportunities to live healthy lives. And we're, what we're doing now with the transit-oriented development or the flexible housing pool is scratching the surface. I really want to really think about how it is that we in the city, in the government, but also in the private sector, work together to lift up communities. I think there's a Westside United, which is a collaborative of hospitals and community organizations on the west side, who are really looking at how they can invest in the communities on the west side, hire from the communities, um, contract with businesses in those communities, um, provide educational opportunities for people living in those communities so they can actually rise up and improve the standards and the quality of life that they have within their communities. And That's work that's just beginning, it's nascent, and I think those are the kinds of initiatives I'd like to see spreading within all the communities that have great need in the city of Chicago, and I think we'll get there. It's just not going to happen yeah. overnight.
1: Yeah, it takes champions, like people from who, who started that organization, to get, to, to get the ball rolling in there. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit to um, ask you this question. Uh, so how do you the health equity issues you addressed working as commissioner um, transfer to the work you'll be taking on nationally at, in your new role at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation?
3: So I think that the work of Healthy Chicago 2.0 really put Chicago on the radar in terms of this kind of unique and innovative type of work. And so because of that, I think that's why I was asked to interview for the position. So these experiences that we've had here in Chicago and the innovation that we've done here has really lifted us up, Chicago as a whole, and then gave me this opportunity. And I'm hoping to take what the lessons that I've learned, and I think consider this the front lines, really to the foundation so that um, that can inform the work that uh, the foundation does moving forward.
1: So the Robert Johnson Foundation, uh, we did a little little research and digging, um, describes a culture of health as placing well-being at the center of every aspect of our lives. Um, How would you describe the culture of health in Chicago?
3: I think we're making huge progress. um, I do feel that. I feel an energy and I feel a momentum. And I think Healthy Chicago 2.0 is great because what it is, we put our stake in the ground and said that the Department of Public Health is committed to this type of work and we want to partner with others. And as a result, many other partners have reached out to us and wanted to work with us and engage with us, which has been incredibly valuable. And so the successful stories or the innovation that we've done in Chicago have been because we said we are committed to this type of work. And what's been so exciting is that there have been partners coming just from all over the place that really want to engage and want to do this kind of work. I think part of the challenge is just, the challenge I see going forward is that it's not always clear how to make it happen. And so West Side United was a great example they started, and they weren't exactly sure where they were going to end up. But they're now moving in a great direction, and they have great momentum. And I'm hoping on the south side there'll be a similar type of initiative that will actually, you know, lift up some of the south side communities as well. Um, but I think, from my perspective, there is this: the first step is really acknowledging the need, recognizing that we have to work together, and these cross-sector partnerships are really, really essential. Uh, and I think, and we're we're well beyond the acknowledgement and the recognition now, and we're starting to take baby steps forward and I'm hoping that we'll be running soon in the city
1: of Chicago so how do you how do you think this culture of health compare in Chicago compares to other major US cities like New York or LA
3: I think it's interesting. Different cities have different strengths, and so I don't know that I could say that we're better or that we're worse than any either of those two that you gave as an example. There's also some mid-sized and smaller communities that have done great work in terms of community development, anchor institutions in, the, in, in jurisdictions stepping up and playing a role in developing the communities, committing to the communities. Um, and I, I think, so there's, there's great models throughout the US. And so while Chicago has made some major strides, I feel like there are other good examples that are out there as well.
1: Great, thank you. And This next question is a more reflective question for you. Uh, so you had numerous successes in your role as commissioner um, in policy and advocacy. And as you leave your uh, 20-year tenor and then the Chicago Department of Public Health, what stands out as the biggest win you've had? I, th-
3: I mean, I think there's a few. I th- oh boy, there's, there's, a, there's th- things that I really take a lot of pride in. I think uh, maybe I'll, if you don't mind, I'll talk about a few and you can edit out what you don't you want could, to. You can
1: enumerate the whole thing when it comes here. Yeah, account. one of the
3: great, the best learning experiences I ever had was with working on uh, during the Ebola crisis, yeah. uh, because we didn't, though we didn't ever have an individual who was infected with Ebola come into Chicago, mm-hmm. it required an intensive effort and in coordination of healthcare systems throughout the city of Chicago, and so we got four academic institutions in the city of Chicago to work together to became, become a network of healthcare systems that would provide care to individuals who had we suspected of having Ebola, and that's not an easy thing to do, and yeah. yet everybody stepped up, everybody played their part, and everybody worked together, and it was really there were times that we were on the phone, middle of the night, talking about getting patients transported from O'Hare Airport to one of the hospitals, one of the hospitals couldn't accommodate, so the other hospital stepped in, and it was just an incredible experience of, intense experience of coordinating and bringing partners together because we had a common purpose and common vision, common goal in mind. So that was great. That was a really ex- incredible experience. In contrast to that is some of the work that we've done in immunizations, which was um, has been a near very near and dear to my heart. Um, we have, you know, in 2006, the HPV vaccine, which is a human papilloma virus vaccine, was licensed and recommended to prevent cervical cancer, primarily in women, young girls, and yet the vaccine wasn't taken up that well. It lagged behind all other adolescent vaccines, and to me, that was just this terrible tragedy that we have this life-saving vaccine that's available, and people weren't getting it because of fear because of the way it was being presented to them or misconceptions about the vaccine, it just wasn't being accepted. And so we in the city of Chicago decided we needed to focus in on making sure that Healthcare providers knew how to educate their patients about the vaccine, and then also that um, and, and to talk about it in the same way we talk about other vaccines—not to focus on the fact that it's sexually transmitted disease—and just to talk about it as a life-saving, cancer-preventing vaccine. But then also getting public information out into the community so people understood that it was a really important vaccine. It's not really shouldn't be considered an optional vaccine. And through our efforts with public information, healthcare provider education. Um, working with doctors and the systems that they have in their offices, we actually raised our immunization coverage levels to, you know, among the highest in the nation. And so that was incredibly satisfying because when I know, I think about uh, people dying of head and neck cancer or people dying of cervical cancer or other anogenital cancers, there's this vaccine that's there and people are getting it now. And we still have work to do, Um, but it's also, we know a high proportion of young people in the city of Chicago have been vaccinated and will be prevented from getting HPV virus infections. So that's incredibly rewarding and satisfying. And then the other example that I can't not talk about is just the tobacco work that we've done. I mean, I think the the policies that the city of Chicago implemented over the past six to eight years have been remarkable and have resulted in dramatic reductions in teen smoking, which is fantastic. we're, our victory—we can't do a victory lap yet because of the juuling and the vaping concerns that are out there. The threat is there, and it's real. And the tobacco manufacturers—they know that the way that they make money is by getting people addicted, and that young people get addicted more easily than older people. And so that's why these new products are out there. And so though we can celebrate the success that we've had with uh, traditional uh, tobacco smoking products, um, tobacco products we still have so much work to do from a vaping control perspective and um, so I, I celebrate the success that we've had but I also acknowledge that there's a lot more work
1: to do. Is there a challenge or something you wanted to do as Commissioner that wasn't realized during your time at, uh, at the CDPH? There's so much. <laughs> <laughs> you can pick one thing. <laughs> that's why, that's, yeah.
3: I, we're, as I think about leaving the department as excited as I am to be joining the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh-huh. I'm also very very sad to be leaving public health, leaving government, because when we do things, it may take us a while to get them done, but we have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And to leave some of this work, whether it's tobacco or vaccines or community linking community development and health and determinants of health and race equity issues, all these things, there's so much work. that Though we've made progress, there's so much yeah. work that needs to be done. And so... Um, I am confident though that the Department of Public Health is very strong and our partners are strong and committed and so the good work that we started in 2016 and before uh, will continue onward.
1: What advice would you give to the next commissioner uh, of, of CDPH uh, and, and what current um, programs or initiatives would you like to see amplified?
3: Yeah, I think so my advice to anybody coming into a public health um, role, leadership role like this would be to always keep in mind what is the public health goal? What is it, what is it the guiding light um, as you move forward? Because if you have public health always as your primary purpose and your primary focus, then the decisions aren't too hard to make. Um, I think there's so much noise and distraction, whether it's you know other competing priorities that external parties bring to you, there's always a distraction. But if you know what's important and what's, what you need to focus in on from a public health perspective, The decision-making is not that difficult and so I think that would be the advice that I would give to um, anybody who comes after me I before coming into this position I read an article by Jonathan fielding who was a health commissioner in Los Angeles County for many many years and he one of his pieces of advice for health officers was treat the job like you don't need it because then you always make the right decision for the right reason and so that is the decision that is actually the Guiding light that has been in, in my mind um, in tough situations when it wasn't
1: always clear to me what I needed to do. I have to ask: Is there, is there was there a tough situation you could talk about where you weren't sure what to do?
3: I mean, I think in any any of those situations, whether it was HPV vaccine or Ebola, yeah. or whether it was pandemic influenza or meningitis outbreaks, it was always who is most affected. How do we help those that are most effective? Those kinds of if you kind of keep that in mind always the decisions just were not that difficult. And I guess the other thing was tapping into experts in the field, too. Because there are plenty of other people who have experience or who have different perspectives that are really valuable to have. And so I shouldn't pretend like I made decisions by myself, in a, in a, right. in a you know, just closed off by myself. I often tapped into experts in infectious diseases or in social sciences or in community development, transportation just to get their perspectives and their guidance to inform the decisions that we make but if public health is the priority for the department of public health and health and well-being then that makes it easier for us to focus on what we need to do
1: thank you so much um uh, dr Mira i we would also like to ask um for our listeners if you have any books or authors you have recommendations for we'd love to hear them and share them with the audience
3: sure so um I've been listening to a podcast really recently, which I think is really important as we just wrestle with issues of race equity. Um, I'm listening to Seen on Radio's Seeing White" series. It's a 14-part series that explores um, racial inequity in schools, housing, criminal justice, and hiring. It's very, very interesting, and I encourage folks to check that out. The other thing that I did that I think was really interesting and early on in my career as commissioner, I read... uh, a document called Making the Case for Linking Community Development and Health. And it was uh, just a report that was issued by Building Healthy Places Network, and it's been, it was really, really helpful for me as we decided to embark in this path of looking and engaging with community development organizations, so I would encourage folks to look it up and check it out as well.
1: Okay, great. And we'll, we'll definitely link that in now when we post the episode for, for our listeners to look at. Thank you hopefully.
3: very much for this opportunity. It's
1: a pleasure. Thank you. It was very nice talking to Dr. Marina. We appreciate your time.
2: That was our discussion with Dr. Julie Marita, the former commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health. We got to learn about her story and her work into keeping Chicago healthy. She gave us insight into what it takes to lead a public health department of a major city. One of my main takeaways from the conversation was when Dr. Marita referenced the advice of an L.A. county health commissioner, which stated, quote, treat the job like you don't need it, then you will always make the right decision for the right reason. I thought this was great advice for anyone in public office or leadership positions to focus their
0: efforts on those they're serving. I really like after the interview when we had a side conversation when she talked about many people came together during the polar vortex in January of 2019 to help everyone like their neighbors, the homeless, and the elderly. It was something that all of Chicago experienced together. So everyone came together, unlike diseases that only affect certain group of people.
1: One of my takeaways uh, and what I learned was the coordination needed to bring together so many different stakeholders with competing interests to combat things like the pandemic flu or the Ebola virus. Those were our takeaways from the interview with Dr. Julie Marita. Now we'd like to shift to discussion of certain topics to dig a little deeper. Uh, we want to talk about the smoking, tobacco, and e-cigarettes. So in Illinois, effective July 1st, um, Governor Pritzker signed into law banning the sales to those under the age of 21, including cigarettes, cigars, chewing tobacco, and nicotine-based products, such as e-cigarettes and vaping materials. And just a note about the vaping terminology. So these companies like to use the word vaping or vape products to disassociate themselves with the cigarette. Industry, But they are, in fact, nicotine-based products, which um, lumps them under the tobacco nicotine industry.
0: Although there's no statewide ban for e-secrets in Illinois, most local law is more strict anyway. Many cities in Illinois banned e-secrets in all public institutions, workplaces, bars and restaurants, with a few exceptions, such as the e-secrets retail shop. In a different city, San Francisco, they took a
2: different approach, um, banning the sale of electronic cigarettes. And this is the first major U.S. city to pass such a restriction. Um, Some of the points in support are saying that it's going to help curb underage smoking or vaping. And another support is saying that it's going to force agencies like the FDA to undergo appropriate health review of these of these e-cigarettes before they hit the shelves. Opponents say that this takes away adult alternatives to regular cigarettes, so that's another good point. So what this law is doing, it's preventing residents from buying e-cigarettes in San Francisco stores and receiving online orders to addresses in the city.
0: That's very interesting. I wonder what our listeners think about similar law for Illinois.
2: Yeah, that'd be interesting to see if that um, that's applicable here in our city or in the state of Illinois.
0: Well, if you have any opinions, uh, you can let us know what you think about what we discussed today. Uh, or if you have any comment on our interviews, remember you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com or tweet us as at Trees 312 mm-hmm.
2: The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors, and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute of Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views or policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.